Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. Because I'm a big chicken shit when it comes to walking in the snow. <laughs> Especially when I know I have shitty shoes. Because uh, yeah. I haven't pulled out any of my winter shoes yet. Uh, it's December, babe. You gotta get on that. I know. I know. Soles of my shoes need retreading, anyways. Should put um, diamonds on the soles of your shoes. Mm, I should. Yeah, that sounds both economical and sensible. But, but do you get the reference? No. Oh, <laughs> it's Paul. It's a, it's a it's a Paul Simon song. Oh, sorry. And it's real good. Okay. So it would have been funnier if you had gotten the reference. I'm really sorry. But you didn't, so you can eat a bag of dicks. Okay. to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about John Marston's The Insatiate Countess. Yeah. Yeah, that noise. <laughs> if I could do you just sounded noise. like you were gargling <laughs> mouthwash. I can't, I can't do that noise. I, I can't do the one at the back of my throat, you know, where people can do like the wookie noise or that. Like, I can't do that very well, but I can trill my R's at least oh, in yeah, the front of my that. mouth with the. I can do that. Yeah, I can't. I, I, all I got is meow. That's a helpful substitute. <laughs> like, hey, Tiger. Uh, anyway, so that's the play this week. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you're new here, if somehow this is the first time you're encountering our podcast, which, like, this is a, this is one to start with. Um, what mm-hmm. we do here is that every week we discuss a different play. Sometimes it's by Shakespeare and sometimes it's not. And this week uh, it's not Shakespeare, but also it's a 101 level episode. And Aubrey, what the hell does that mean? That means it's introductory level. It means we give you everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play. And sometimes it's salient plot points and themes and other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else. Like our opinions. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, Before we get into it, though, we are going to do happy hour. Yeah. What's happy hour, Jess? Well, you know, it's it's a it's a thing that we started doing this season uh, where we just like talk about shit we like, like um, anti-racist pedagogy and decolonization and um, inclusivity. Yeah, that. And also puppies. Yes. (laughs) Although we have never actually had a puppy on happy hour. And I feel like we're going to have to rectify that before. We are. We can't just keep saying it. Puppies and kittens. Like, folks, if you've got brand new puppies and kittens in your lives, why haven't you shared that with us? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I guess I could I could start us off with not a puppy. Um, I told you, but now I'll tell the listeners. Uh, my dad is getting a kitten, and I am Aww. very excited about this because so cute. he's going to be a little old man with a little tiny kitten, and I'm really excited. <laughs> 
Anyway, Aubrey, that is exciting. What are you recommending to us this week? Yeah, so during happy hour, we recommend stuff that we like that isn't terrible, that makes us feel good sometimes. Um, And my two. Uh, my two shout-outs and signal boosts this week are really just that. Um, first, I want to signal boost another podcast. It's called All My Relations. Um, this is how they describe themselves on their site. I'm quoting here, a podcast hosted by Matika Wilbur, uh, Swinomish and Tulalip, and Adrian Keen of the Cherokee Nation to explore our relationships, relationships to land, to our creatural relatives, and to one another. So it's two indigenous women that lead this podcast, and they talk about all kinds of stuff. I randomly learned about this podcast by tuning into a different podcast that I listen to a lot called She's All Fat, and they were signal boosting for Thanksgiving. They did this really, um, really fascinating uh, Thanksgiving episode on all my relations about like the, the myth of Thanksgiving as we teach it to little white kids in school and how, you know, they'd rather call it thanks taking and, you know, what, what the divide is between the history and the actual history and the myth. It's really, really, really smart, really engaging. And I just want to signal boost that podcast. And the other thing that I'm excited about that I haven't read yet, so I can't be like, it's so good, but I know this writer and I know it's going to be good. Um, Ijeoma Oluo's new book, Mediocre, is coming out. I think either it's just been released or it's about to be released really soon. Uh, you might recognize her name from So You Want to Talk About Race, um, which is a just a seminal book on uh, anti-racist work and conversation. Um, so be on the lookout for that. It's I think it's going to be really good. It's going to be fire. Yeah. I'm excited for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's my stuff. What you got? Cool. Um, So I want to signal boost a um, an Instagram account, which is just at so you want to talk about. If you're not following already, you should be. They they do um, like nice little infographics, short little I you know sound bites, but for your eyes. (laughs) Things eye bites. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So like like the some of the most recent ones are how to get out the vote for Georgia, destigmatizing taboo topics, federal mm-hmm. death sentences, the issues with runoff elections, um decolonizing Thanksgiving, alternatives to Amazon. So it just it's really it's it's a good starting place for lots of topics that you might have questions about or that are difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um and then most weekends I think most Sundays they also do like a good news slide, which is a nice palate cleanser. Um, and it, you know, five or six things that were good that happened this week. So uh, that's that's the thing. One thing two um, is a book that I read this week, and it's really good. Uh, okay, so <laughs> okay. it's called it's called They Never Learn. That is why I picked up my phone, was to fucking Google who the author is. Oh, yes. You texted me uh-huh. about this book. I sure did. You were very uh, excited yeah. about it. They they Never Learn by Lane Fargo, and that's L-A-Y-N-E, Fargo, like the place in North Dakota, and also the TV show? The TV movie? show and the film. Great. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, both of the, those things. Visual entertainment media. Yeah. Um. So the premise of this book is a bisexual English professor serial killer 
who murders men who deserve it. And one of them <laughs> happens to be her former student. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and it's amazing. Um, and as with, you know, any novel about a bisexual English professor serial killer, there's a twist. There are actually there are a, couple, a couple of twists. Naturally. Um, and one of the twists is like real, it's real, real good. I, I was like, Mm. Mm. anyway it's good uh you should check it out you should read it i i devoured the whole thing i think in about seven hours total was about how long it took me to read the whole thing um it was real good so that's what sounds I like it sounds like it ticks a lot of escapist boxes too <laughs> yeah for teachers in particular mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean because who among us hasn't dreamed about murdering at least one of our students at one point that's relatable. No comment. Mm-hmm. This is going I mean, out on the internet. No comment. I mean, I'm just being real. Most yeah. of my ex-students know that I definitely wanted to throttle mm. some of them. So, like, I'm not I'm mean, not telling tales out of school that's here. That's real. You also taught uh, <laughs> high schoolers. Yes. <laughs> which are like, oh, Devon guy and I breed. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I had high it's, schoolers. <laughs> it's really, really good. And it's set on, like, this cute question mark fictional liberal arts college in pennsylvania so it's like atmospheric and like there's snow and just like really cute and and then murder murder and also like (laughs) rare books and a fucking special collection and archives and london and gay sex but with ladies which is still, I guess, gay sex because we just use gay <laughs> colloquially to mean homosexual desire. Yes. So I like anyway. how you're figuring this out in real time. It's going to be great. <laughs> Thanks. Just thinking it through in real well, time. Well, I'm not trying to be exclusive. Or, no, no, I get it. You know. Uh, anyway. Yeah, There's no, also I know. Heteronormative sex, if you're into that kind of thing. There's a Halloween party. Hmm. If you're into that kind of thing, I'm always uh, into a, a Halloween party. Cabaret, if you're into that <gasps> kind of thing. I'm so into that kind of thing. Mm. Cabaret. It's one of my favorite yeah. musicals, and I only mm. like like five of them. So <laughs> it's it's in my top five because I only yeah. like five. Anyway, check it out. It's, awesome. It's a thing. I'm okay. excited about that. That's great. What happens next? We talk about the people who wrote this play. Yeah, and this play is so cuckoo bananas. Um, it's got a couple of different authors, predominantly John Marston, but also these two other guys. So we're gonna we're gonna do a meet the contemporary, John Marston. This is your life with some footnotes for William Barkstead and Lewis Machin. Mach- sure. I match. I mean English, so probably matching. Matching. Okay, we'll go guess. with matching. It's not like it's yeah. not going to be machine. Yeah. See, or that's machine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's French. Yeah. Machin. Yeah. Um. So. Eh. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, John Marston. Right. Yes. Um. We also we did an episode on another John Marston play way back in our first season. See, I didn't even remember that. Uh, well, we looked it up. Uh, I know we did. Week. I know, yeah. but I um, forgot. I don't. I don't remember which play it was. <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, somewhere 
in our back catalog is like a very fulsome biography of John Marston. Also, the internet exists. So we're going to give you the highlights here, which yeah. is that he went to Oxford. By the year 1595, he was living in London, pursuing a career as a writer. Uh, the first thing he wrote was poems and satires, and then he started writing plays. First, he, he began his career in literature with a foray into the then fashionable genres of erotic apillion and satire amazing Which, like yeah mm-hmm. i don't even know what an apillion is but i don't either we probably should have googled it also yeah, i'm about fine. to get a goddamn phd in goddamn english literature so i should probably know what a goddamn <laughs> apillion is so i'm gonna goddamn google it goddamn right now apillion god damn it uh it's a narrative poem that Ooh. resembles an epic poem in style but which is notably shorter and erotic uh well i think the ones that <gasps> oh never marston mind. wrote was erotic i don't marston think wrote erotic opinions but not all yeah. opinions are erotic yeah got yeah. it that's yeah all um, so, Marston opinions are erotic. <laughs> uh, so while he was writing The Insatiate Countess, um, he stopped writing The Insatiate Countess, and he decided to go take holy orders. So that's what he did. So that's <laughs> that. That's John Marston. But See you later, that, John Marston. He wrote a shit ton of plays. Not a shit ton, but like a, a, a healthy amount. He he wrote several plays. Yeah, so. yeah he did. Anyway. I just love the idea of this particular play breaking him, and he's like, "Nope, cannot. Yeah, must go be a monk." Like yeah. I just, it's <laughs> uh, great. Um, so the other two co-authors, uh, first is William Barkstead. Here is everything we know about our friend William Barkstead. He was an English writer in the 17th century. He worked on the Insatiate Countess. I think he was also an actor too. I think I read that somewhere. He was an actor. But like a bad one. And I read it in the the Rebels edition notes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't read it. On the PDF. Um, I can cite my sources. Okay, and then Lewis Matchin. Here's everything we know about Lewis Matchin. He, too, was an English writer in the 17th century. He worked on the Insatiate Countess. Um, The author of the Rebels edition also calls both of them hacks, which I find really funny. Um, I wish I'm looking at this PDF. I don't see the author's name or the editor's name. Yes. Sorry. The editor. I don't see the editor's name. The author of the introduction. Um, Revels. Uh, Lucy Monroe. She does a lot of rebel stuff. Sure. But yeah, um, they're referred to explicitly a couple of times as hack writers who, who added on to this play, uh, which brings me no end of delight. I just find that so saucy and so funny love that for you um yeah so uh john marston william barkstead and lewis matchin that was mm, kind of your life you're welcome (laughs) um so now we're gonna move on and before we summarize the play for you we always give you a five word unhelpful title Mine is more than five words but i had to do it mine is countess brings all the boys to the yard And they're like, she's better than yours? Pretty much, yeah. Damn right. End of play. She's better than yours. I could teach teach you, you, but but I'd have to charge. Charge. Uh, Yeah, so my five words are, um, there's a countess, she's insatiate. Succinct? 
clear. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Yeah. It's actually helpful. Perfect. Well, <laughs> I mean, kind of. I don't know how helpful it is. Yeah. I'm actually not all that convinced on her insatiability. Insatiousness? Oh, yeah. Insatiosity? Um, <laughs> I mean, she definitely gets around, but I'll... I'll I feel like, well, anyway, we'll get into that. Okay, so uh, let's, we're going to hit you with a DP real fast. Um, yeah. It's a lot of people. It is. Yeah, well, I feel like with the Italian plays, we almost invariably have to just list, like, a shit ton of people. That's like, true. has there ever been an Italian play where we're like, we only need to talk about ten characters? No. I don't think so. No, there hasn't. There has mm-hmm. not been. Um, I don't yeah. know what it is about those Italian things. So here's our Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to start with uh, Isabella, who is the titular insatiate countess. Um, she is the widowed countess of Suivia, and she's insatiate. Yes. Uh, then we have Roberto, the Count of Cyprus. And Guido, a Venetian count. Mizaldus, a Venetian guy. Uh, we also have Rogero, another Venetian. And then we have Claridiana, also a Venetian, definitely a dude, despite the feminine ending of his name. And he's Rogero's enemy. How are you saying his name? Rogero? No. The other guy. Claridiana? Definitely dude. Claridiana. Okay. Why? How are you saying it? Claridiana. (laughs) 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 You've been out in Alabama for too long, girl. You're like, Claridiana? Well... (laughs) That's how it's spelled. All right. Okay. So you know what? I'm just going to keep going with that because I think it's funnier. Um, So then we have Abigail, who's Clara Diana's wife. Uh We have Thais, who's Rogero's wife, who's also BFFs with Abigail. And we have Lady Lentulus, who is a widow. Mm -hmm. We have Mendoza, the nephew to the Duke of Venice. And Anna, who is servant to Isabella, the Mm -hmm. insatiate countess. We have the Count Nyaka, a Venetian. We also have the Duke of Venice. We have the Duke of Medina. And John Sago, a Spanish colonel. Yep. And then we have various and sundry messengers and servants and cardinals and friars and a random executioner here and there. He's not random. I mean, he's, he's not random. He's... <laughs> Executioners aren't I was random. Just like, going with the last up. thing in the list. Like, <laughs> wouldn't that be great, though? <laughs> Like, like if he was an executioner on, like, say, um, you know, in a wedding procession, you'd be like, "That's random." But like, he's he's you know at no the one end, expects at the, the random executioner. <laughs> oh Lord! All right, Aubrey. Why the hell should this play be so goddamn popular? I don't know if it should, but I'll tell you why I like it, and I like it for. It's five female leads. It's got five female leads that are all different and interesting and sometimes ridiculous. Um, I mean, spoilers, they're the only five women in the play, but they're all really interesting in different ways. Um, Also, there's a double bed trick that happens in this play, um, which, like, for this particular, I, I can see and feel everybody being like, oh, bed trick, it's so mm-hmm. rapey. No, which, usu- which usually it is, but like the bed trick in this play is not like that, in my opinion. Um, 
Also, this play is labeled a tragedy because a couple of people die. But, like, it is fucking funny. It is not a tragedy by modern standards in really any kind of way. It is silly, silly play. I think it's been I think it's been held back, frankly, by its label as a tragedy. Because people think, ugh, another tragedy. How boring. But, like, this play is so funny. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Uh, and that's that's why. Those are my reasons for liking it. Also, I just have a sentimental attachment to this because right. I stage managed this play. Um, and I, I love it. This is one of the rare non-Shakespeare plays that we're going to talk about where we're not going to finish the summary and I'm just going to shout, I love this play. <laughs> because I don't love this play. I'm very interested in this play. But I have, I have, well, we're, I'm going to tell you about my feelings after we talk about this play. Uh, okay, so we will now summarize the Insatiate Countess for you in a segment that this week we're calling Literally What Even Is This Play? You Decide. Ooh, I love it. Choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of is, though. Yeah. Okay. All right, take it away. <clears throat> Act one, Guido, Mazaldus, and Roberto enter Isabella's chamber where she's in mourning for her husband. They make some vague and some explicit innuendo. They basically want her to be fun and fancy free, and she makes some lovely speeches about her grief. But then she tells the audience that she thinks Roberto is a fucking beefcake. Um, Roberto and Isabella do some smooching. Isabella puts out her mourning candles and promises to hereafter forget her husband so that it won't cloud the love she shares with Roberto. They get married the next day. Meanwhile, definitely a dude, Clara Diana and Abigail leave the temple after their wedding at the same time as Rogero and Thais leave the church after their wedding and the two grooms seeing each other draw their swords. Guido says that their feud began with their grandfathers and compares them to the Capulets and the Montagues. Uh, The brides, Abigail and Thais, fight over how they used to be best friends, but now they're enemies because they hid their marriages from each other because that's what friends don't do, question mark. But then they decide to still be friends in spite of their husband's enmity. Meanwhile, Mendoza, the Duke's nephew, flirts with the widow Lady Lentulus. Definitely a dude Clara Diana married to Abigail actually loves Thais, and so he makes nice with Rogero because of it. The men then bicker some more, but eventually reach a somewhat uneasy peace. But then, turns out, Thais's husband Rogero is actually in love with Abigail and slips her a love letter. Definitely a dude Clara Diana vows to get revenge on Rogero and to make Thais his lover. Wow. So much. Act two. To celebrate the marriage of Roberto and Isabella, the men put on a mask. Definitely a dude, Claridiana, uses the mask as an opportunity to woo Thais and do a little sexy dancing while Ruggiero does the same with Abigail. Thais remains aloof, but Abigail likes Ruggiero's flirting. While dancing, Isabella falls in love with Guido and she's like, hey, beefcake number two, give me some. That's literally the stage direction. No bones about it. Abigail and Ruggiero arrange an assignation. Isabella leaves the party in a huff because she's so overcome with her feelings for Guido. She then speaks with Guido privately and flirts a little bit, but he thinks she's making fun of him for falling while he danced. 
Isabella sends her servant Anna to set up a lover's den in Pavia so that she can carry on an affair with Guido out of her sight of her brand new husband, Roberto. She goes to her husband's bedchamber with an air of mourning. Abigail and Thais meet, and Thais shows Abigail the love letter that her husband wrote to Thais. Abigail is brokenhearted to learn that her husband has thrown her over so quickly and tells Thais that her husband promised to woo Abigail. The two women promise to stay faithful to each other and arrange bed tricks to catch their husbands out. Isabella sends a love letter to Guido. Guido is immediately into it and woos her real hard. They smooch a lot. Guido leaves for the love nest in Pavia. Roberto finds his wife has deserted him and vows to take holy orders. Okay, in Act 3, Mendoza shows up at the widow Lentulis' window to woo her and sing to her. She agrees to let him come up if he promises to keep his love fair and chaste instead of lustful, and he climbs a ladder to her window. He falls right at the top and woos himself <laughs> grievously. Okay, so she can't stupid. help him. Because to do so would impugn her honor. So he's just like dying in the street and is all like, it's okay, babe, go to bed. And then just like all drag myself home. Uh, But then he's immediately discovered by the watch. So in order to find out how Mendoza came to be wounded, the watch searches the nearby houses and finds definitely a dude, Clara Diana, in Rogero's house. And Rogera in definitely a dude, Clara Diana's house because bed tricks are bed tricking. Both men confess to murdering Mendoza because that's better than being found out for adultery. Yeah, that's also Mendoza's not dead. Um, so Guido and Isabella set up their love nest in Pavia and they entertain Nyaka, who's the Count of Gazia. Isabella immediately falls in love with Nyaka and throws over Guido. She faints sick to get herself alone with Nyaka and confesses her love to him. She offers to kill herself rather than live without his love. Thus manipulated, Nyaka agrees to love her and swears his faith to her. Uh, back in wherever we started, Abigail and Thais laugh about the bed trick that they played on their husbands uh back then in pavia naka and isabella have a sexy rendezvous guido comes looking for isabella but her servant won't let him in and then isabella tells guido to gtfo and leave her alone forever and then guido prophesies that blood follows lust (gasps) act four definitely a dude claridiana and rogero stand trial for mendoza's murder even though mendoza is still alive and even the duke of venice and the senators acknowledge this fact the men say they hurt Mendoza because they were jealous, even though they definitely weren't even there when he fell off the ladder and hurt himself. And these two men seem determined to be put to death. They each claim they killed Mendoza in a different way. Then they call each other names and fight in court. They're both sentenced to death, and then they complain about being forced to share a grave because they hate each other so much. Then they bring in Mendoza for questioning, and he says he'd confess to trying to rob the widow Lentulus. He's sentenced to death as well. Isabella has finally heard the things that people are saying about her, and she swears revenge. Nyaka swears to champion her, and he confronts Guido, and they trade some insults, and they argue, and they engage in a little bit of swordplay. But then Guido starts getting through to Nyaka, and he tries to convince Nyaka to leave Isabella. And Nyaka asks for Guido's forgiveness. And then Isabella's servant delivers news that Nyaka and Guido have both left. And Isabella gets real mad. She beats her servant and gets really ugly about, like, classism and maybe also a little racist. And Isabella swears to get revenge. Don Sago, the colonel 
kind of wanders through. He sees Isabella and instantly falls in love with her because obviously that is what he would do. Isabella takes advantage of this and gets him to commit to revenging her. Meanwhile, Abigail and Thais laugh with Lady Lentulus over their husband's resolve to be hanged rather than admit themselves cuckolded. Ha 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 ha. The ladies take themselves off to prison to set everything right and get all the men released. Don Sago prepares to murder Isabella's foes. He confronts Guido and shoots him, but then is immediately captured by the watch. Okay, fucking act five. Don Sago is hauled off to the scaffold where he says he's been bewitched by lust. The Duke of Medina is all, yo, I feel you, bro. Have a pardon. Uh, a messenger brings the news that Isabella is unwilling to meet her execution, so apparently she's also been arrested, I guess? Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, she enters all Ophelia-like with, like, flowers and loose hair, and she seems to maybe have had some kind of psychotic break, saying her doctor doesn't think that she's in danger of dying. Um, she makes many, many speeches of devotion to Don Sago and ascends the scaffold at the last stinking second her first husband in this play roberto the guy who like went off to join a fucking monkery arrives on the scene in his friar's robes he forgives her for her sins against him and then just leaves uh the executioner strikes off her head <laughs> the duke of venice is determined to get to the bottom of the mendoza slash definitely a dude claire diana slash rogero mess Abigail and Thais arrive to sort things out, but their husbands shout abuse at them and don't let them speak, but then the Duke hears them out, and spares definitely do Claire, Diana, and Ruggiero, who still fight each other while they're putting all the pieces together. They make up with their wives. The end. Damn. In fucking eight and a half minutes. Jesus Christ, <laughs> this play. This is a stupidly intricate play for such a stupid play. <laughs> oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. Okay, so to give you all just a, just a sampling of, of what this bonkers text is like, we're, we're now, we have a feature called A Taste of Text, uh, in which we read a small but crucial scene from the play to give you a, just a little bit of its flavor. Um, I recommend, if you're okay with it, uh, just that little part in 3-2, um, yeah. where uh, Isabella basically turns... <laughs> from guido to nyaka who do you want to yeah. be i would love to be isabella if that's a, if you're okay with doing two Girl, different dude voices i will do so many dude voices i thought you might yeah I i'm gonna i'm gonna dude it up in here okay so i'm guido and and nyaka, nyaka. yes great okay so so guido's guido's gonna be like broy i think and nyaka's gonna be like highfalutin i don't know how effectively i'm gonna do different voices but i'm gonna try so just to keep the boys straight just to give people some context to remind us where we are guido is the one that isabella saw in the mask doing a sexy dance and she's like hey boy look at that dance in that mask and he's like hey girl and they have like this love grotto in pavia um and while there nyaka I don't know, wanders into her field of vision and she's like, ooh, look at that boy. And that's, this mm -hmm. is kind of, so this is how she she gets them both. That's why that's why I picked this moment because she's throwing one guy over for another immediately. Yeah, it's kind of great. One. Okay, so, Isabella, I gotta get into it. <sighs> shake it out, shake it out, shake it out. Okay. Oh, I am sick, my lord. Kind Guido, help me. Ayo, hey, for fend it heaven, madam, sit, how fare you? 
My life's best comfort, speak, oh, speak, sweet saint. Fetch art to keep life, run, my love, I faint. My vital breath runs coldly through my veins. I see lean death with eyes imaginary stand fearfully before me. Hear my end, a wife unconstant, yet thy loving friend. Ayo as swift as thought I fly, I fetch thee aid. Thus innocence by craft is soon betrayed. <gasps> my lord Nyaka, tis your art must heal me. I am lovesick for your love, 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 for loving I blush for speaking truth. Fair sir, believe me, beneath the moon not but your frown can grieve me. Lady by heaven, methinks this fit is strange. Count not my love light for this sudden change. By Cupid's bow I swear and will avow, I never knew true perfect love till now. Wrong not yourself, me and your dearest friend. Your love is violent and soon will end. Love is not love unless love doth persever. That love is perfect love that loves forever. Such love is mine, believe it. Well-shaped youth. Though women used to lie, yet I speak truth. Give sentence for my life or speedy death. Can you affect me? I should belie my thoughts to give denial, but then to friendship I must turn disloyal. I will not wrong my friend, let that suffice. I'll be a miracle, for love a woman dies, offers to stab herself. Hold, madam, these are soul-killing passions. I'd rather wrong my friend than you yourself. Love me, or else by Jove's death but delayed my vow is fixed in heaven, Fear shall not move me. My life is death with tortures, lest you love me. Give me some respite, and I will resolve you. Dun dun dun. And then they do it. Or something like that. <laughs> so, there you go. A taste of text. And just in reading that, oh my lord, the rhyming couplets. Right? <laughs> it's, it's and they're real lot. bad. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're not great. It's not, it's not like, you know, soaring verse here. Um, no. Yeah, not at all. No. Yeah. Three, okay. two, I think this is not one of the parts Marston wrote, so. Mm, yeah. It's one of those hacks. <laughs> yeah, this was Barkson. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, cool. Well, tell us, tell oh. us some things, Jess. Talk, talk to us. Okay. Talk to me, baby. So, like, first, what the fuck happens to Mendoza? Like, okay, so, like, he falls, and he hurts himself, and then he's sentenced to death for a crime that he did not commit, and then we never hear of him again. So, yeah. <laughs> wherefore art thou, Mendoza? Um, so, like, some some critics maybe think there's a scene missing because like the the text has seen a lot of different people mm -hmm. um and it, it doesn't exist in like anything close to an authorial copy so i don't know mystery of mendoza i don't have a good answer i just need to acknowledge that like what happens to him we don't know uh and then i guess we can move on so then like my second thing is what the fuck is this play <laughs> um is it a comedy is it a tragedy is it a tragic comedy like literally what is it what is this play uh the wiggins calls this a tragedy 
They call it a tragedy doubly because like in its time, it was marketed as a tragedy, but also like by today's standards, fucking Martin Wiggins is out here calling it a tragedy, but like, it's not a tragedy. Like it's not. Yeah. It's like really it's not, not, it's not like Guido dies. Okay. Cause he's shot Mendoza. What happens? Maybe Mendoza, dies. Right. And then yeah. Isabella gets her head chopped off cause she a whore. I don't know. It's not enough to be a tragedy, right? Like, if yeah. if the definitely dude Claire Diana Rogero Thais Abigail situation, like if that were anything approaching a subplot, I'd be like, okay, maybe maybe it's a tragedy with a comic subplot. But like, it's not. It's like an equal plot. It's like, right. and it plot. ends with the mending of the marriages, right? Yeah, the mar- basically. Yeah, such as they are, they get put right. So yeah. yeah. Which is a comedic trope. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't what, know. What is this play? <laughs> like, why um, do you need to put a label on it, Jess? Just let yeah, it right. let it be what it is. You know, all labels are so confining. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, like, what the fucking hell? The instability of this text. Like, literally, how yep. many men are there and who are they and what the hell? Okay. So okay. many men. Okay. So, first of all. <laughs> Um, as, as we've discussed, this play has at least three authors. Um, Marston wrote like a little bit, like really like Marston wrote a tiny bit of this play, like not very much at all. Um, and what he did write, he probably wrote before 1608 because that is when he fucked off to religion. So, (laughs) um, where'd he go? Oh, he fucked off to religion. (laughs) Yes, as they did in those days. Yeah. Uh, I just like um, the way you phrased that. <laughs> so then Barsid and, and Machine, um, you know, probably they worked it over and wrote new stuff and finished it out probably like two years later, like in about 1610, probably as part of preparations for a new rep for the Children of the Queen's Revels at the Whitefriars. That's probably why they were dusting off this play. Uh, so that's like problem one is that there are at least three people writing this play. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then problem two is that Guido and Ruggiero and Mazaldis and Mendoza are different characters based on which version of the text you've got. Okay. So it was like, like I read the play and I was like typing up my summary as I went. Okay. And then I like went back through to check my work on the summary and I got like soups confused because they are all different characters in different versions. And I was like, surely I didn't get these guys that confused. Like surely I'm not going to, put guido into definitely a dude claire diana's rule like that's i what um and then like so it turns out that i didn't get it wrong in fact but different texts do different shit and it's really fucking wild okay so mazaldis is sometimes ruggiero and sometimes mendoza and ruggiero is sometimes guido and guido is sometimes mendoza and sometimes mazaldis and mendoza is always mendoza but also sometimes he's a lord and sometimes he's a signor and sometimes there's just like another mendoza in the same play i guess like is it just speech headings getting mixed yeah, up like yeah well it's not it doesn't seem like they're mixed up. It just seems like each person who treated the text in an authorial manner thought that some characters had different names. So like <laughs> So like Guido, right, is the the second in the play husband of Isabella. He's the one who like dances and then she's all like, yeah. "Oh, oh, you're dancing," Ooh. right? Okay. Yeah. Um but in some 
versions of that play, or in not some, in a different version of that play, that character is called Mendoza. And it, yeah. Uh, right? And so then Guido gets assigned to be, like, one of the angry husbands. Oh and it's God. just, it's, yeah. So, okay. And of course, it I, wouldn't be an English play if they didn't have a stereotypical <laughs> Italian stallion character named Guido. Right? Just putting um, that out there. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. The, the textual instability of like the character names also affects the women, but uh, significantly less so. Right. So anyway, um, okay. So then my final thing is that like this play is based on a true story. What fucking what? Like I am yeah. jazzed about this information. Okay. Okay. So now <laughs> we're gonna talk about this information. Okay. So Bianca Maria, who is the Countess of Chalant. Okay. Or in Italian, Chalon. I don't know. <laughs> it's in Italy. I looked it up. Um, she was executed for adultery in October 1526. Okay. So the story goes, apparently, that Bianca Maria was on her second marriage, but her husband was away fighting, so she began a series of affairs. And mm. then, when she got tired of Ardizino Valperga, Count of Massino, she tried to get rid of him by starting a fight between him and one of her other lovers, the Count of Giazio. Uh, but the men instead compared notes and simply arrived at a mutual hate for her. Hmm. There is a fucking contemporary account of this shit, and I'm going to read it to I you. I love it. Kay? Give it to me. Uh, this was written by a guy whose name was Matteo Bandello, or sorry, Matteo Bandello. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, okay, so I quote, The Count made the sign of the cross, and all full of wonder said, Fie, shameless slut that she is! If it weren't a dishonor for a knight to imbrue his hands in the blood of a woman, I would gouge out her tongue through the back of her neck. But first, I would like her to confess how many times she begged me with her arms on the cross that I have you killed. And so they repeated in public and private the crimes of this dishonest woman until they were on every person's lips. She... Hearing what these gentlemen said about her, even if she pretended no concern for it, was angry with indignation and thought of nothing else but to be highly avenged. It was in those days, in Milan, that there was one Don Pietro de Cardona, a Sicilian, who governed the company of his legitimate brother, Don Artale. This Don Pietro was a young man of 22, dark-faced but proportionate in body and melancholy appearance, hmm. who one day, seeing Mrs. Bianca Maria, fell wildly in love with her. She, judging him to be a pigeon of first feather and instrument capable of doing what she so longed for, lured him to better ensnare and dazzle him. Oh he, gosh. who had never before loved a woman of account, considering her to be one of the first in Milan, pined miserably for her sake. In the end, she made it one night to go and sleep with him, and took such loving pleasure together that he believed himself to be the happiest lover in the world, and not long after asked the young man to kill the Count of Gaziazzo and Signor Arzinigno. <laughs> Don Pietro obligingly ambushed Signor Ardizino and did him to death. Arrested thereafter, he was equally obliging in giving up his paramour as the moving spirit, and she foolishly admitted as much by trying to bribe her way out of trouble. Don Pietro was permitted to flee from prison. 
But the unfortunate young woman, having confirmed her love's confession with her own mouth, was condemned to have her head cut off. She, having heard this sentence and not knowing that Don Pietro had run away, could not be prepared to die. At the end, being led onto the ravelin of the castle, facing the square and seeing the block, she began to cry in despair and beg for the grace that, if they wanted her to die happy, they would let her see Don Pietro. But she sang to the death. So the poor woman was beheaded, and whoever longs to see her face portrayed in life should go to the Chiesa del Montastero Maggiore, and there he will see her painted. Oh. My. God. Right? Right? Amazing. Yeah. Um, Wow, such colorful storytelling and narration as well. (laughs) Hey, thanks. I did my best Italian. Um... (laughs) Final fun fact for you uh, is that extracts from this play show up in a 17th century commonplace book that's held by the Folger uh, and which I examine in the second chapter of my dis. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. I don't really care about the insatiate countess parts. I care about the Shakespeare parts, but like, sure. I've touched that book. Yeah. And I, I in fact, noted it. Um, and I might, I might actually have pictures. And if I do, I'll throw that up on our Instagram. Oh yeah. That'd be great. That we never use. Um, (laughs) but maybe we'll, we'll try to be better about using it or maybe we won't. Who the fuck knows? Anyway, Aubrey, tell me some shit about this play. Great. Okay. One thing that I love the most about this play is its opening line, (laughs) which is, Mm -hmm. what should we do in this countess's dark Whole. That is the first line of this play. I which mean, it, like, it has to be the best opening line. It's, like it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Like, oh, the double entendre, the just like it's oh, chef's kiss. It's so perfect. Um, and like the whole rest of the play just goes downhill from there. Like you can't beat that opening line. I love it so much. I love it. It's so filthy. You can go a million different ways with it. Um, because they literally are in like some kind of a cave dark place, right? Well, it's, it's her, it's her chamber. There we go. She's her chamber. Mourning, mourning her yes. Oh, that's right. Cave. <laughs> <laughs> They're in her cave of mourning. <laughs> They're in her lady cave. But of course ah, that's the, ah, ah. <laughs> that's the joke. Right. Um, so it's great. I uh, love any opportunity as well for a mask. This play gives you a horny mask. Like everyone in it is horny and doing like some kind of weird mating dance for somebody else. And like, how is that not fun to stage? That's it's fun. It's really fun. As I briefly mentioned before, I had the sort of random because no one does this play. But I had the random pleasure of stage managing a production of this play. Uh, for the Rogue Shakespeare Company, which was an MFA company that preceded mine and Jess's um, of Sweet Wag Shakespeare by a couple of years at Mary Baldwin's Mm -hmm. S&P program. And I was just a little baby first year that they roped into doing their stage management. Uh, And it was for one of their small scale shows, meaning that they had to have like a very small number of actors. So they only had five actors to play all of these parts. Four of them were women and one was a guy. So you can imagine like the... um, playing gender be- quickly became an issue for them 
I'm figuring out how to do all these characters and all of these differentiate between all of these dudes, right, that come after the Countess and these other women. So so it was complicated. The show is complicated. The, the text, as Jess has pointed out numerous times, is complicated. But what we learned from that production is, one, I just love this play because it's so goofy. But, but it also, like, sh- we all kind of figured out really quickly how gendered this play can be. And, and by that, I mean, like, performing masculinity, also performing femininity. There's a certain level of caricature, I think, that lives in this play, which is why to 2020 eyes, it really reads as more of a comedy than a tragedy. So, like, it, I don't know. It, um, because we had four women and one guy playing all of the parts, we sort of inadvertently learned how how performative gender roles really are, right? Because um, they had to work out, like, what signifiers do we need to wear for each of these people? And, like, what, what they kind of all landed on was that the dudes get sexy hats and scarves. <laughs> <laughs> because with a small-scale show, when you're, like, flipping around and possibly talking to yourself on stage, like, that's all you have time for. Um, but they made some really hot use of those hats, I'm telling you. Don Sago had a fedora that was just, it was really good. So we also, because everyone was so confused about the play and about the people in it and what was happening, um, we put together a timeline of events to figure out how long everything in this play takes from beginning to end. And it's, depending on what you think about some of the lapsed time in Act 4, it could either be five consecutive days or spread out in about a week, so about seven to eight days. So basically that means that the Countess changes boyfriends far more frequently than I even change pants. So that's something to think about. Um, <laughs> like Now you've okay. learned something about me. Um, that I, I mean, it's you know. a pandemic. It's a pandemic. Yeah. I know, right? Like, I just wear the same pair of pants every day. It's fine. But, like, the Countess is changing men just like light bulbs, man, just like one after another. I mean... For perspective, Romeo and Juliet also takes place over about a week, and that's just one love affair that goes wrong. That's not like six of them, right? And most of them are in one plot line, right? And then the other, the co-plot, because as just said, it's not a subplot. It's more like a... Equiplot. Equiplot. Thank you. Thank you for the actual term. I forget whose term that is. I didn't invent it. It exists. But I don't know who came up with it. It's a, it's a good, it's a helpful expression, either way. So there's that. Uh, and watch out for, I mean, amongst the bad writing, watch out for the references to the mouth and and all things labial in this text. Uh, and the mouth I imagery hate in this that text. You said that. I hate that you said labial. Labial? Blah. I don't know another concise way to say that. Um. I'm but anyway, <laughs> you said mouth, but like lips too. There's like lip imagery. I'm, I'm aware, but I, you have to know that when you say labial, I know because what okay. I'm about to say yes. is okay. mouths Sorry. are euphemistic <laughs> for vaginas, and you know, obviously, if you're an insatiable eater, you're probably also a sex addict, or that was the Jacobean idea and the Victorian one, and basically everybody thinks that. So. Like that's that's a thought that's been ingrained in in you know Western society for quite a while. So like there's just interplay there between like eating and mouths and lips and everything to do with that part of your face and also sex. Right, that's where the sort of the innuendo 
lives is in the mouth. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Except not sorry because it's it's definitely percolating in this play. I already had dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Also, just to put a fine point on something Jess already brought up, Mm -hmm. this play was maybe first performed at the Whitefriars Theater in 1613, which at that time was being used by the Children of the King's Revels, a boys' playing company. That means that this play premiered, this incredibly sexual play premiered, played by children, which I find alarming and kind of hilarious. Can I pop in real yeah. real fast? Okay, so when I said it earlier, whenever I said it, I said Children of the Queen's Revels, and you just said Children of the King's Revels, and I want to acknowledge that for any sharp-eared listeners out there, ah, yes. that neither one of us is right or wrong. Um, I took Queen's Revels out of the Wiggins when I was looking at stuff about authorship for this play, um, and the Wiggins is kind of like the Bible of of stuff, um, and they they acknowledge that we don't know which company it was. They say it was probably the Queen's Revels, but if it was slightly earlier, it could have been the King's Revels. We don't know. So there you go. It's gotcha. I mean, and also I think it's like the same company. It was just changed yeah. patrons. So. Right. Uh, yeah, and I pulled King's Revels from the Revels edition on the PDF in the notes. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. There you yeah. Go. Um, so, but the but really the operative word here is children. Yes. <laughs> it was a children's company that yep. premiered this play, this filthy, filthy, labial-obsessed play. I did that just for you. Don't look at me like that. Um, also, just an interesting link, just a tiny little tidbit that I also pulled out of the notes in the Revels edition. Um, some critics of this play, T.S. Eliot amongst them, suggest that this play is in some way like a poor copy or a response in some way to John Webster's The White Devil, which you will recall we did an episode on not that long ago in this season, season four. Um, oh, yeah, it was our first episode this season. Yeah, The White <laughs> Devil, um, about yet another sort of... Not insatiate, really, but maybe insatiate for like homicide. I mean, a instead of sex, woman. yeah, a notorious, you know, woman doing her thing, slaying, however she defines that. Um, so I just find it. I would find it really interesting if someday when we can all, you know, go to the theater again, I would love to see what happens if the insatiate countess and the white devil were in rep together. And just to hear and see how they talk to to one another. Like, the White Devil is inarguably a tragedy, right? It's And a revenge tragedy at that. It's, like, gruesome. And then you've got this sort of, I don't know, like a caricature of it? Like a comic, tragicomic take on something very similar to it about yet another, like, horny Italian duchess? So I just find that, I just find that fascinating. So just... Think about that. Think about how this play talks to other plays. And if you haven't listened to our White Devil episode, maybe now's the time to finish this one and then go and listen to that one and be like, oh, yeah, Aubrey, you're totally right. And that's that's the end. Okay. What yeah. happens now? Oh, we keep now, up with some, some men. Yeah, we're keeping up with the Queen's men. What is the play and what is my part? You know, they're like the Kardashians, except they're actually worth your time. So yeah. what are we what are we talking about this week in the Queen's okay. Men, Jess? 
So this week, it's The Troublesome Reign of John, King of England, which was written probably 1589, but it was printed in uh, 1591, and it was, like, maybe written by George Peel, question mark? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so here's the plot. John becomes King of England, but young Prince Arthur, son of his elder brother, also has the title to the throne, and his claim is supported by Philip of France. John refuses to give up his kingdom and prepares to invade France. The kings of England and France confront one another outside the English-held town of Angers. Angers, that place. (laughs) Um, When the citizens refuse to yield to either John or Arthur until one or the other is proven the rightful king, Philip the Bastard suggests that the warring kings should join forces against the town and cement the alliance with a marriage between the Dauphin. And Josh's niece, not Josh's niece, John's niece. Who's Josh? <laughs> right? Who the fuck is Josh? Random Josh. Ah, uh, right. So John's niece, Blanche. Uh, John and King Philip agree. Cardinal Pandolf excommunicates John for his interference in ecclesiastical affairs. John refuses to submit to papal authority, so King Philip switches his allegiance back to Prince Arthur and war resumes. Mm -hmm. Arthur is taken prisoner and committed to Hubert's custody. Mm -hmm. John does his best to break the Pope's power in England and has himself crowned again. Hubert is ordered to blind Arthur, but Arthur persuades him that God's commands have priority over the kings, and Hubert spares him. The barons ask John for Arthur's release, since he is no longer a threat, but Hubert reports that the boy was blinded and has died of his injuries. The barons are outraged, the king is discomfited, Hubert admits the truth, but Arthur throws himself from the castle walls, and the barons find his body. The barons invite Louis the Dauphin to invade England. John outflanks them by making his submission to the pope. Cardinal Pandolf confirms him as king and orders Louis back to France. Louis refuses and battle ensues. John falls ill and takes refuge at Swinstead Abbey. He picnics with the abbot, but is poisoned by a monk resentful of his earlier actions against the church and dies tormented by his conscience. His son Henry becomes king and confronts Louis, forcing him to leave the realm. Sound familiar? Indeed law. I mean, Lifted as familiar directly. as one would be. Yeah with hmm. um you know hmm. uh king john by william arthur shakespeare uh so also uh it was publicly acted by the queen's men sundry times before 1591 sundry so many must have been yep. a popular story Crazy. well uh i mean there's at least two plays so <laughs> Uh, yes king john i guess so keep this one in mind the troublesome Mm -hmm. reign of king john or of john king of england when we go to vote on the best queen's men play that we're going to turn into a 101 episode so this is now our listeners are like you know what play you should do is fucking john king of england i'm gonna riot (laughs) be like nah son we ain't doing that shit challenge accepted (laughs) (laughs) all right let's gossip a little bit and then go home yeah okay um so i like didn't have anything this week because i have been off the internet and therefore like not keeping up with the twits um but uh uh the red bull theater company um out of new york which you can find at redbulltheater.com uh is doing a live benefit reading of bo fletch's king and no king on monday december 14th which is the day this episode comes out so if you hear it in time you could go watch a live stream of king and no king um it's at 7 30 p.m eastern standard time 
You can get details on the website, uh, which again is redbulltheater.com, and that's theater with an E-R, not an R-E. And that's what I got. Oh, also I scheduled my dissertation defense this week. It's happening! It's happening! It's real! It's on a calendar now! It's real! Yeah. I'm not gonna say when it is, because... I yeah, don't jinx it, man. Not jinxing it, but also I'm like head in the sand about it. Um, <laughs> la, but la, I will say I you. that it is happening uh, while this season is still happening. So um, you, y- y'all will know when I become a doctor. Yay. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God, Aubrey. <laughs> okay you have to talk okay great um great i have just a couple of things that i want to shout out one is um i do this thing uh at the asc called shakes space shx space it used to be called discovery space in honor of the you know the middle entrance at the blackbriars the discovery space um but we're doing this whole like shakes series branding thing so we changed his name to me it still sounds like space camp but whatever beside the point i'm bird walking Shakespeare is a program for teens. Um, we do like eight to 12 weeks. Um, now it's over Zoom. Um, but this particular series uh, or cycle through it, I, because I like podcasting um, and I had such a small group that was really enthusiastic and like raring to go on Shakespeare things, um, I decided to, it's really self-guided for them. So they turned some scenes from plays that they love into podcast episodes and you can find them and you can listen to them. They're really short. They're like no longer than 25 minutes, any of them. Um, there's one scene from Twelfth Night, one from As You Like It, one from Hamlet, and one from Julius Caesar. And it's on the Dr. Ralph Presents podcast. If you look for Dr. Ralph Presents on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Podbean. That's where you find it. But it's the Teen Takeover series. They're, they will have all been released by the time this episode airs because they're being released this week. And it's just a, you know, it's kids making some Shakespeare for radio. Like they did, they worked out how to do all of the Foley sound effects. They did voices when there were multiple characters. Like it's just pure and good. And I think it'll, you'll get a kick out of it. Um, so please check that out. I'm really, really proud of them and their work. So apparently we have more corrections to make. Oh boy. No, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly a correction. Okay. Um, okay. It's, it's like more information. Um, ah. so our last episode was King Lear, um, and Alex Legrand who provided me with all of my information about McCready is a dear sweet friend of mine, uh, and sent me, um, a couple of texts right after she listened to that episode and was like really enthusiastic and gushing about it. Um, but also says that McCready was Irish and we, oh. I think we had been like, I Googled him and found on Wikipedia and it said he was English, but yeah, it's Wikipedia. Yeah, so, so what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think, I think he was, he was Irish, uh, more by heritage than, because like gotcha. he definitely lived in okay. England, okay. Um, but he had a falling out with his dad, who was a theater manager, but was like real bad at it, and so like changed his name to a more anglicized version of mm. McCready. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, uh, and also uh, McCready added his Lochran character to Cymbeline as well, what? which like right makes the whole thing like even way more fucking interesting. So anyway. Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next time for our 
hundredth episode spectacular! <laughs> Spectacle is in the eye of the polder and your mileage may vary. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Offer not valid in all areas. Lamb it out. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurleyburleyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurleyburleyshake, no S, on Twitter. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I record, the Muskegee Creek Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land currently referred to as Stanton, Virginia, the Monacan and Menahoic nations, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. gonna I'm, I'm gonna have to start your education i'm just disappointing you right and left today i'm just really well, not I mean, starting my like, week out right how how many times do you make obscure 90s hip-hop references that like i don't get that's so fair. <laughs> yeah that's fair like it's yeah. your turn we're we're even yeah <laughs>